Husky football podcast on the entire internet and the official podcast of the Cody Pickett Fan Club. I'm Andrew Berg, and I'm joined by Gaby Lucas. Gaby, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. I'm I'm I am more stuffed up than any human being has ever been in the history of since like the Black Death. Uh, but it's not coronavirus, so I'm doing as long as it's not that, we're good. Is it just you deciding and proclaiming to yourself that it's not coronavirus? Well, if it is coronavirus, then I've had coronavirus for about two years because I pretty much had these allergies hit in May of, like, May 12th, 2018. I remember that date for some reason. Uh, And then they just never went away, and now they're particularly bad and have been for the last two months. So my nasal cavities have never been less see-through. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I I follow. There's logic to that. So you're patient zero. (laughs) Uh, so we're coming back to talk a little bit about the things that have happened and the things that are going to happen in the Husky football world. We're also going to talk a little bit, do a postmortem on the Husky basketball uh, catastrophe of a conference season later in the show. Producer Rob is going to join us for that portion as more of a fervent basketball fan than uh, KB has self-identified as. Uh, we're also collecting mailbag questions. We're going to do an entire show dedicated to that in the next couple weeks during this slow time of the year. We've got some good ones, and we hope people will keep hitting us up on our various Twitter accounts at GabyNotGabby, at Abert7, or even at the official UW Dog Pound Twitter account. All will work. Uh, But today we're going to talk a little bit about the spring game, a little bit about uh, previewing the depth chart for next year, and so on. So let's talk a little bit about the spring game first. This is something kind of new for Husky fans, at least in uh, the recent past, uh, we didn't have a real spring game. We had some uh, semi-open, semi-practices with some scrimmage elements to them. This year, uh, Jimmy Lake, who seems to be a little bit more interested in the salesmanship part of the job, is putting together a full spring game and marketing it and trying to get people to show up to it. Are, is this something that interests you or excites you? Uh, yeah, I I mean, I've, I've been to Peterson's spring, quote-unquote spring, what were they, spring previews or whatever in the past. Um, unfortunately, I won't be able to go this year because I will be in Singapore at the same time as that is happening. Uh, at, knock on wood, given coronavirus. But uh, if, if you know what, silver lining, if coronavirus keeps me from going to Singapore, then I'll, I'll go to the spring game. Yeah, although I think we're we're – actually in more danger in Seattle at the moment than Singapore. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But I'm there, excited to get out there. What, I mean, I've never, I would be honest, gone to a spring football game um, since I've been in, since, like, it's just never been something that was appealing enough to me. I, I look at it now, the way they've been presenting this one, it does seem more exciting. Um, do you expect they get the kind of turnout that they're hoping for? I think they were shooting for, beating the Oregon attendance, which if it's a sellout at Austin, that's 65,000 or something. Uh, if they can beat that attendance, do you think there's any shot of doing that after not really doing a game like this the last few years? Uh, I'm skeptical personally, just based on knowing how human psychology works, especially in groups. I'm skeptical that they would be able to do that in the first year. Um, I like the fact that they're trying because I mean, you can't even, you're not going to do it if you don't try. Um, but I feel like, especially with how kind of low key uh, and uh, low profile um, Peterson has made spring the last six years, like I, f- I feel like it's going to take a year or two to kind of get out, get fans out of that mentality and kind of make it into a thing that uh, is more has more public appeal. But I, I think down the road, I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, it's almost like it has to become a thing. People have to see other people enjoying it, and they yeah, would show totally. up. Are there so obviously you know there's there's a fan fest attached to it something they're calling something like a fan fest and there's also the game itself which you know should be the purple versus the gold or whatever they're going to call it is there anything else you would like to see added to the spring spectacular field day 
uh, that they're not doing now that would get you more excited about it? I don't think they're – ooh, that's kind of – I have to think about that a bit. Cause I don't think there's any one thing, not off the top of my head, that I'm like, oh, if you added this, I would definitely go if I wouldn't originally. Because I think the main thing is I personally – and I think this, I assume this is how a lot of other people are. Like, the main thing that would make me want to go is an actual football game uh, versus previews, blah, 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 little practices, et cetera. Like, I, I don't think you can make it any other way, so any way other than the game being the primary attraction. That being said, if they had the dubs, the dubs one and two hanging around as a dog, <laughs> as a dog person, like I'd like to cuddle with them. Alternatively, a few years ago they did a thing where they had like I think it was yeah they had Vita Vea do a tug of war against three normal human beings. <laughs> that was and that was certainly entertaining. But I think anything um, like you, you can add a bunch of stuff around the game itself to make it more. Appealing, but I don't think anybody, nobody who wouldn't go to a spring game would then see another thing added on to the spring game and be like, oh, okay, well, now I'm going to go. You know, does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I, there probably are a handful of people like that. I don't know who, the, like, what the events are exactly. When you, I was thinking it's combine season. If they, like, built in a team combine that people could watch, it would be kind of fun. Uh, that would probably get old kind of fast. Like, it would be fun to watch yeah. two guys do as many reps of 225 pounds on the bench press, but then by, like, the ninth guy, it would not be fun at all. But I like your idea yeah, of, like, weird feats of strength are, like, basically turning it into American Ninja Warrior for football players. That kind of thing yeah. would be fun. Um, yeah. Combines, combines are more, are, like, interesting for a little bit, and only to people who are the absolute nerdiest, but in person. Like, you don't have any data there. You can't you can't see by eye who ran faster than 40. Oh, that kind of looks fast. That yeah. Look fast too. yeah, it is so, yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It's so redundant that in person, like, combines, I feel like, are a thing where either you have it on in the background on TV where you can have the metrics running and just be working on something else, or if you're an absolute uh, psycho nerd like Hithloday in Oregon, you probably do watch it and scan everything and stay tuned in. But, like, in person, those are boring. Yeah, I don't really know what you had to gain by watching it closely. It's like, this guy has really good running form. Or, like, he, he, he cheated on that rep or something. It's kind of... Yeah, um, unless you're jam, there's nothing really to, like, I don't know, to take away specifically from the... I guess there's certain mechanical things. I don't know. Do you worry at all about the chance of players getting injured in a more full-speed environment like this that doesn't actually count? Uh, I mean, not really. If you think about, you look at how many people get injured just during practice in general. Like, at a certain point, it's just, you're just rolling a 20-sided die and crossing your fingers, whether that's in practice or in a game, um, especially because so many of the really bad injuries are non-contact, and whether that's practice or a game, what's the difference? I mean, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that the, I, I don't know this, but I would, I, I'm sure that the statistics for a game versus a practice, yeah, you're slightly more likely to get injured. But if you look at the big picture, you know, you have 85 guys on scholarship, that is. And what's who a how much more likely is any given player uh, going to be injured during a game? And in that game, what's the percentage chance that that player is more likely to be somebody with a huge impact than during someone getting injured during practice? So I feel like as far as the marketing um, and brand building advantages to having a spring game versus the cons of a very, very, very slight increase in injury, I, I really can't imagine that that's a, a, a really a disadvantage in the big sense. Yeah, I think you're, I mean, I think that's the right comparison. It's how much do you gain from marketing and branding versus how much do you lose by the increased injury risk. Uh, and you're, I also think you're right that they're both pretty small. There probably is a little bit more injury risk. I think players do get hurt in games more often, they get hurt in practice, but yeah. they also have several months after this game to recover. So unless it's like a torn ACL, it's probably not something that's going to keep them out of competitive games. And nobody has more 
of an interest in the team being as competitive as possible than the guy who's making the decision to have this game. So clearly he thinks it's worth that trade-off. And, uh, you know, the tiebreaker in my mind is it'll be fun. Uh, like, it's a good experience for the fan, and I'm a fan, so let's, let's go for yeah. it. Well, uh, and also, wait, and also the, like, if you're looking at the net impact, like, it, it helps build up marketing, which helps build up talent acquisition, which means, you know, two, three, four years down the road when you benefit from everything, uh, you're going to have more talent at your disposal that, you know, I don't want to say more talent, quote, unquote, to get injured because that <laughs> is a really crappy way of framing things, but you have more more leeway to move with. So the longer you have this kind of marketing going forward, um, just, yeah, the more wiggle room you have versus those situations where you're at a position and someone gets injured and then you're like, oh, F, this whole position is screwed, a la the linebackers kind of this year. Uh, so building up that image in the long term prevents uh, or helps minimize the impact of injury. On I hope the so. Whole I mean, that's aggregate. definitely the goal. Yeah, I hope it works out that way. Um, yeah, if, if, of course, the other side of that, if we're extrapolating this to the impossible degrees would be that we get so many players injured that it ruins us competitively this year, which has an adverse effect on our marketing and our ability to recruit. Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, we've now talked this into impossible depth. Uh, but while we're, you know, forecasting what comes next, a big part of the allure of the spring game is starting to look at some of the position battles. So we might as well start talking through that as well. I figured it would be fun to start with some of the more uh, appealing position battles, the skill positions on offense. We'll talk more about uh, defense and O-line and other things as time, as the season gets closer. But I thought, you know, we're in the middle of the offseason. Let's have some fun and recklessly speculate about who we think is going to start at the various offensive skill positions. So let's start at quarterback. It seems like probably a two-man race between uh, Jacob Sermon and Dylan Morris with possibly uh, an Ethan Garber's uh, interlude if he really impresses everybody in uh, practices between now and the start of the season. Do you have uh, a, a gut feeling right now? I mean, it certainly has looked – there hasn't been a lot of stability there. They've looked outside the program uh, – been a lot of questions about who's a better fit. We don't know what the offense is. What do you think? Um, yeah, okay. As, are we talking about my prediction or who I want? Actually, I don't even know who I want, so. It's kind of hard to have a preference when we've neither nobody's proven anything yet. But, yeah, I mean, what really what we're going on is, I mean, we both know the difference in skill set between Sermon and Morris, um, but I think I think we'll be able to tell right okay right now I think I'm in holding mode uh and I don't I don't feel like I can make an accurate prediction between those two and I think it really just rests on Sermon I think it's his to lose simply because we know he has this and we've talked about this before we know he has those physical abilities that if he works to mentally and intangibly be in a right place there's no reason why he can't have it but I I think because we've seen so little of him since you know other than I suppose fall practice and even then most of the focus was on Hayter and Eason I think it'll be I think within five I would guess okay five spring practices open to the media I think we'll be able to make a pretty firm prediction on whether it's Sermons or whether Morris is going to take it because I really think it's what you're looking at is really mostly Eddie's strides that he's made. And if he hasn't made them by this, a few, by say two weeks into the spring, I think it's unlikely that he will take that jump. And I think then I would put money on Morris, but I, I think it isn't unlikely that he, that he will make that and that we'll see, um, you know, with practices that are open to the media, that it could easily be his, um, get all things considered. Yeah, I, I think you're right that the early practices will be really important either way. I'm not sure I, – I, I don't really know what to think about anybody coming in with an advantage. Like, even when the coaches say there's a blank slate and it's a true competition, I don't know how true that is because they're bringing their past experiences with the players with them. I don't know enough about 
what Jimmy Lake's past experiences with either of these quarterbacks in practice as a defensive assistant would have been, and if any of that carries through to making the final decision on who starts against Michigan. Uh, so I, it, it's really hard for me to say that one of them would have some kind of advantage. I think one of them probably does. I don't know how to figure that out. Uh, but I think you're right about those early practices having a, an outsized impact, the whole halo effect of, like, the first few things that happen are going to uh, influence our opinion of everything that comes after that. And if one of them does assert himself early, it's going to shift the perception to being, like, now you have to prove as the underdog that you're better uh after those first few practices. So we'll see how that goes. I, I you know, there's, it's very difficult at this point to, to make a choice there. Um, if they do go with more of a traditional pro style offense, I suppose that would slightly favor uh, Jacob Sermon because he's got that bigger arm. He can move it downfield a little bit more easily. And he is, you know, he does have another year in a college program, which might help him a little bit with read defenses and things. But I think a lot of it's going to come down to uh, those skills with uh, picking up the new offense as well. And we don't even know what that will be yet. Uh, we might have a little bit of an easier time just because there's more uh, tape on these guys forecasting uh, what the running back rotation is going to look like. One thing we don't know is whether there will, you know, during the Peterson years we certainly saw far more often than not a, a lead running back who got probably a majority of the overall carries and then a stable of guys who split the remainder. Uh, we may not see that next year. It may be by design. It might just be by uh, the the not having the same bell cow type back as Miles Gaskin or Savan Ahmed. Uh, but it looks like Richard Newton probably is would be the safe bet to get the most carries right now. You've got Sean McGrew behind him, who proved himself very capable last year, but is probably in a little bit more of a specialist role. And then behind those guys, there's you know the Wiley veteran Kamari Pleasant. You've got uh, Cam Davis coming in. Uh, as a redshirt freshman, so he's got a year in the program and was a very highly regarded recruit. Javian Sunday, we've talked about him before and all the exciting things he did as a high schooler. And, and Sam Adams, also highly regarded recruit, so it's a very deep position. Do you have a feeling on how the playing time shakes out and, and how we might see the usage uh, break down once the season gets going? Yeah, I really, really, even with losing Savon, I really like what this position group looks like. I, if I had to put money on it, I would probably say – um, uh, I'd probably say Newton getting like 60% of the carries and then, uh, or maybe, maybe, 50, yeah, let's go with 60%. And then McGrew probably getting 30 and Davis. I could say, and I should say this is at the start of the season, McGrew getting 30 and then Davis getting 10. Um, and then I wouldn't be shocked as the season goes on to see Davis get, get a bit more. Um, but I just think it's a really, um, dependable, I think it should be a really dependable group. Um, between, I think, obviously, Newton has showed himself to be a really good, like, kind of fall forward, kind of trustworthy back. Um, even if he didn't, obviously, didn't have the insane explosiveness that uh, Ahmed had. Um, and then combining him with, with, I think, McGrew is kind of a really good example of that sort of depth position player that is really kind of turns into a very reliable player, even though, you know, you're not going to win championships with the team full of Sean McGrews, but you do need players like Sean McGrew on your team to kind of keep everything going in the right direction. Um, and I think especially considering how um, underwhelming he looked his first, first couple years in the program, I think he's turned into somebody who you can really rely on much more than I had ever expected him becoming. Um and then I, I talked about Cameron Davis a little bit on our on UWDP when when he signed, but I really like him. I think he could turn into. I think by the end of the year, I wouldn't be surprised if he's taking a lot of snaps along with uh, along with Newton. Um, he, I don't know how many people listening to this have watched any of his high school tape, but he had some some plays on his high school tape that looked like like Najee Harris from. Alabama and stuff where you're looking at it and you're like, oh, how this is where he's about to go down and get tackled, and then he somehow gets out of it, and it's it it's like a, it's absurd <laughs> this sort of perseverance that an ability to keep moving forward and get out of seemingly impossible jams. Um, so I think even though 
they don't necessarily have that guy who's moving totally from number two to number one like they've had in the past, or I guess just last year. Um, I'm I'm really confident in that group for sure. Yeah, I am too. I, I actually think if if there's any part of that that I I would tweak, it would be I think Davis might be getting more than ten percent of the carries even from the beginning, just based on yeah. It's been a little while since we reviewed his scouting tape, but he really was an incredibly impressive high school player yeah. and really well regarded to recruit when he signed. It was a, a pretty big coup for Washington and, uh, you know, turning him loose. Didn't really need him last year because there was a lot of depth at the running back position and Newton was very good as a redshirt freshman himself. Uh, but this year there will be more opportunities for him. I also, when you talked about a whole team of Sean McGrews, it got me thinking of what that offensive line would look like. And it's like one of those uh, breaking Madden uh, games where you have a bunch of five foot five, hundred and seventy pound offensive linemen trying to block the Auburn defensive tackles, and it's a very funny visual. Uh, yeah, that's the best version of that. Is my me and my college roommate would create uh, custom characters in Madden, and he created a, a character, a running back for the Browns, who was five foot one and three hundred twenty pounds, named Gimli, uh, Gimli, son of Gloin, and man. What a wily mother effort to tackle. <laughs> yes, that sounds, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, that, that, that's, there was a whole, I'm sure you, you've seen the, speaking of uh, our SB Nation brethren, uh, John Boyce did a, I think it's called Breaking Madden series, where he just did experiments like that uh, and tried to ruin all of the, the entire Madden universe by creating awful players. And it's fascinating and hilarious. Um, Beautiful. Brings us to wide receivers. It seems like fairly straightforward, at least then to start the season, that we would at least see Puka Nakua and Terrell Bynum at receiver. Bynum more likely, I would guess, in the slot, and that would leave another almost certainly third receiver on the field most of the time if we're not playing as much too tight end. Who knows if that's the case. I would guess Ty Jones, if he's back fully healthy next year, uh, would get the first shot at that other uh, wide position. Does that sound about right to you? I mean, there's there's certainly – we've got uh, Marquis Spiker and Austin Osborne continuing to develop, showing some signs towards the end of the year. The true freshmen, Jalen McMillan and Rome Odunze, are very highly regarded. Jordan Chin, Taj Davis, Sawyer Racanelli, all depth pieces, certainly with a chance to be more than that. But uh, anything there that sounds out of order, think that the playing time is going to look different than how I described? Uh, no, I think you pretty much got it. I have – I think there is a more than zero chance that I've seen some mostly speculation, but like speculation based on a little bit of knowledge that like maybe Ty Jones could transfer. Um, But I think more likely than not, those three end up kind of, kind of taking it uh, from there. Otherwise, I think if not, if not Jones, then I would say Spiker is probably the most likely. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah, I think that's yeah. probably, if we're doing a position battle here, that's probably the one to highlight. And you never know. I mean, those two true freshmen could certainly um, muscle their way into that position battle as well for, for sure. the, the other uh, third wide receiver position, we'll call it. Uh, it's kind of interesting that we yeah. had, like, I don't want to call it an embarrassment of riches, but like an embarrassment of options in the slot the last couple years. And it's now suddenly down, it seems like, to just Bynum. Uh, but who knows if we're going to use a slot receiver the same way that we have before or if it's going to be more of a traditional wideout uh, who just wides up inside. Uh, but that does seem to be a little bit different than when we had uh, Chico and, and just like four or five different guys who could all – kind of undersized scat backs who could line up as a slot. Don't really have that anymore. Yeah, and also for what it's worth, I think, I think similar to I think the first two weeks of uh, spring practice will – teach us a lot about what we want to know about who's going to be a quarterback against Michigan. I think the first couple weeks of, of spring ball will also teach us a lot about who's going to be a wide receiver, not because of what they show in practice, but because of what we see the offense turning out to be. Um, because I think if it is kind of a simplified, more receiver and quarterback friendly offense that Donovan brings in, I think it's really likely that McMillan and maybe Odunze um, do kind of show up and, and pull a lot of weight. Well, and to that point, one of the arguments for Jones over the last few years is that he was the only guy we had who had the physical ability, both the size and the athleticism, to go up against top D-backs at top programs and not get physically dominated when he was competing for playing time with 
you know, Aaron Fuller and Chief McClatcher and Andre Michelli. Uh, that's not the case anymore. In fact, you know, yeah, other than, than Bynum, everybody in this, I guess Jordan Chin, everybody in this group is pretty big, pretty strong, and pretty fast, including those true freshmen. Like McMillan is a physical beast, and, you know, he's probably not quite as big as Ty Jones because Jones is enormous, but he's certainly not at an athletic or a size disadvantage when you line them up next to each other. So that might work in his favor as well. Yeah, although skinny. <laughs> Still very skinny, but, but but wiry and strong. And like yeah. In the All-Star games and things like that, he certainly didn't have trouble getting separation or getting into good positions against defensive backs. That could change against you know a junior or senior or one of Utah's 28-year-old defensive backs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's take a break there. We're going to come back. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit of Husky basketball. Gaby's going to listen in to uh, Rob and I commiserating and make fun of us for continuing to watch. And we will be right back on the other side of this ad. Welcome back and welcome to the uh, this side of the glass to producer Rob, Rob Fox Curd. We're going to talk a little bit of Husky basketball. Rob, are you emotionally ready uh, to go down that road with me? I suppose. Yeah, it's been a pretty miserable season. It uh, started out well enough. It started out great beating Baylor, who was number one probably for more weeks than anybody else has been this year. Uh, it was a respectable non-conference season. Weren't any terrible losses. Uh, teams that we lost to there have actually turned out to, by and large, be very good teams. Like Houston was not as highly rated at the time and has gone on to have a very good year. Uh, but then the conference season came, and it included losing 13-15. of 15, It included losing nine in a row. Uh, it included being easily the last place team in the conference, two losses to WSU, uh, a loss to Cal, kind of kick-starting, turning UCLA into a good team. Uh, what is your – give me kind of a short version – from your perspective of how we got here, and then we'll talk a little bit about what it means in, in the uh, next little bit. So I would say the most obvious answer to this would be um, that this team has a severe lack of quality guard depth, which was unfortunately painfully exposed as soon as Quade Green was ruled academically uneligible to play. Um, I think we've as a team, we've won like two or three games since uh, he stopped playing. Um, so, you know, the young guys just looked inexperienced, and they've certainly gotten a lot of playing time. Uh, talking about like Marcus Sahonis, um, Elijah Hardy, uh, you know, some some potential future point guards. But they just look painfully unprepared to step in this season, and our offense was really unbalanced. Uh, our talented big man had a hard time scoring. Jaden McDaniels has had a bit of a disappointing season. Um, and yeah, it was just hard to generate a lot of offense. There's not a lot of not a lot of movement, um, not a lot not a lot being created by the point guards and not a lot for the point guards to do much with. Yeah, I think that's that is the prime cause, and there are a lot of factors, and we could talk about other ones as well, but I do think the most important thing has been the lack of playmaking. They're green. We put a lot of eggs in the quad green basket for somebody who we didn't think probably was going to be eligible until the second quarter of the season anyway. Uh, so I don't know what they planned to do until uh, – January rolled around when there were questions questions about his transfer eligibility. Uh, I guess there was it was <laughs> to do what has happened in conference season anyway. Uh, kind of explains why there was so much urgency to getting that waiver. Uh, no, exactly. But, I think it's a I think it's a fair point. You know, it's uh, I you know I don't think we're at a, a point yet where people are starting to seriously question Mike Hopkins' tenure here. But at the same time, the roster building has clearly been proven to be an issue this season um and like like you just pointed out you know what was the plan if if quade green wasn't available early in the season they clearly were very confident it was going to be um otherwise this season would have been presumably tanked from the start yeah and you could look back through the years of recruiting since hopkins has been the coach then he's had two full recruiting classes then a third that he cobbled together uh, obviously after taking over for Romar, which he did pretty well to keep Jalen Noel in that class. And if Noel was here now, we wouldn't be having this conversation about uh, struggling with playmaking guards because Noel was extremely good at that. 
since then, there have been several guards they've tried to bring in. Uh, Nate Pryor didn't work out academically. Uh, Hardy just has not turned out to be, uh, you know, really have the athletic chops to perform at this level. But then there were others where the Huskies were, you know, either the runner-up in recruiting or uh, one of the, the finalists in recruiting for much better guards. Like, they were in on Nico Mannion, who's led Arizona, probably been maybe their best player for a big chunk of the year. Uh, they were in on Marcus Zagorowski, who ultimately chose Creighton, and he's been starting for them. Is a very good player there. I think it was another one who's starting for a ranked team who uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. But there were, I think it's something that they were aware of. They just didn't execute either on plan A or plan B in terms of getting the extra guards there. And then there's the other issue here, which is that given the option between somebody who's a technically skilled uh, playmaker, somebody who's good with the ball in his hands, uh, and somebody who's a freak athlete, the demands of the zone defense that Hopkins likes to play uh, has led him to preferring the ultimate athlete with great wingspan and great jumping ability over the guy who has the the handle or the court vision or the ability to run a pick and roll or something like that. I mean, that's very apparent with Nas Carter. We're seeing with Jamal Bay. Uh, just most of the wing players on this team are guys who are who were ultimately identified and recruited because of their potential on the defensive end, and when you put enough of those guys together, you end up with a very unbalanced team. And they are very good defensively, uh, but it doesn't matter when you, every game, go for nine minutes of the second half without making a basket. Kind of rough. Uh, I, you mentioned uh, the somewhat disappointing season of Jaden McDaniels. I think he's been a, a lightning rod this year. I, he's been a lightning rod for me. I've criticized him a lot. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about what he's done this year and how he's developed you know, try to give us as even-handed of an analysis of him as we can. So talk me through what you've seen from McDaniels this year, and I, I just kind of like to do a sanity check and see how close it is to, to what I've seen. Um, the talent is, is painfully clear. Um, what, you know, he's, he's exactly what the NBA rules over. The raw talent is there. Um, he's got the size, all the intangibles. Um it, it, it appears to be a bit of, like, a maturity issue. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, like, question his drive because, obviously, he's an elite athlete and you have to really push yourself even to get to this level. But he lacks a bit of that, like, killer mentality. Um, and especially this team really needed him to be an offensive weapon. And, you know, while he's, he's done decently well from beyond the arc, I think there was a lot more hope that he would be able to deliver – more than he has. You know, this team has really been leaning on Isaiah Stewart, and I think that's been kind of a tragedy of this season as well, is he's having a remarkable year. But most Husky fans have just stopped watching. Um, and, you know, it's, it's tough to focus on a brilliant performance from Isaiah Stewart in a nine-game losing streak. Sorry, getting off topic a little bit there, focusing on Stewart instead of McDaniels. But, yeah, no, I'm certainly, as I've stated, a disappointing season for McDaniels. Yeah, I think I do agree with what you're saying. And I think, I don't know if it's maturity or or hot-headedness or whatever, uh, it seems like he can do a lot of really difficult things, but sometimes is so in love with the opportunity to do those really difficult things that he passes up doing easier things, Uh, you know, like doing a, a very difficult step back 19 footer as opposed to just catching and shooting when he is open or, uh, you know, trying to, to drive to the basket with a, a defender on him who he's not going to get by and dribbling it off his foot or just having the ball slapped away from him. And I do think this is not just his problem, but it's, it's something that's been exposed with the lack of green that, there, he's not a primary ball handler. He'd be much better suited as a second or third offensive option at the age and stage in his development right now. But having the ball in his hands so often has led to a lot of turnovers because he's just his instincts and his ball handling ability aren't uh, what they would need to be to be a, a lead offensive option. But I do think since he's been coming off the bench, he's improved there. I've never really questioned his effort or his desire, but I do think he sometimes just needs to refine his instincts in the game and kind of make the simpler decision with the ball. And I I think that can come with age, uh, but it's not a guarantee. There are guys 
in, you know, littered all over the NBA where you look like, oh, he's got so much natural ability. He's six foot nine, and he can shoot, and he can rebound, and he can dribble. And it's like you could end up with Michael Beasley or Andrew Wiggins who get drafted in the top five but never pan out because they don't do the easy things well, and they're always doing something very difficult. Uh, you, you did allude to uh, what this means for Mike Hopkins, and I agree with you that, uh, like you said, he, he he there's not a reason right now to for Hopkins to feel like he should be on the hot seat or should be questioning his future with the team. He did he won Pac-12 Coach of the Year twice. He won the regular season twice. Got to the second round of the tournament last year. Uh, not his fault that McDaniel's just hasn't really been the player that they needed him to be. Uh, but I. I do kind of, I am kind of wondering what your feeling is going into next year where they kind of did an all or nothing pass on the recruiting class, didn't get any of the five star recruits they were after, and now they got nobody coming in with at least uh, Stewart, who is phenomenal, and McDaniel's outgoing, and I, I have no idea whether Green's going to be back or not. How does that leave you feeling about next season? Are we just getting for more of the same? Unfortunately, Right now, it's kind of hard to picture anything different. Um, you know, you lose Stewart and McDaniels, and who steps into their roles? Nate Roberts in limited time, um, as well as Brian Penn Johnson, have looked solid, you know, this year, but neither of them are going to be Stewart by next year. Um, man, who else? Uh, you know, Jerron Brooks comes into play potentially. Um, originally, Garfield High School went to USC decided to transfer sitting out this season. Um, I'm kind of intrigued to see what he'll be able to add uh, to the roster next year. But, again, I think it comes kind of back to the guard play issue. Um, Unless some of these younger guys who are getting a lot of playing time this year truly develop and this playing time really does benefit them in the long run, um, if the answer at guard again next year is just we hope Quade Green works out, (laughs) I'm not super optimistic. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if there is more activity on the grad transfer front, if there are any transfers who could come in and be immediately eligible. I, I actually do have – I'm fairly optimistic about both Marcus Sahonis and Raekwon Battle. I, you know, Battle, obviously, not at the, at the point guard position, but Sahonis, I think he's, he doesn't always make the right reads. He breaks down defensively sometimes. He's not physically dominant. But these are things that you expect from a true freshman, and he's not supposed to be playing right now, and he's doing better – than I think anybody expected him to do as a true freshman. I don't know if that's going to all be solved as a sophomore, but I do think when we look back on him in his junior and senior years, he's going to be a solid, uh, above-average starter, and we're going to feel a lot better about that. You know, I, I, I guess the reason I bring this up is because the Hopkins kind of punted on the 2020 recruiting class because 2021 in the state of Washington is maybe the best recruiting class the state has ever produced and wanted to keep as many scholarships open for that as possible. I don't blame him for that. I think if he knew that this season was going to go like it did, he might have approached that a little bit differently. Uh, But let's keep that in mind. This is kind of, uh, you know, we've had this argument before in Romar's last season uh, with this out-of-this-world recruiting class built around uh, uh, Michael Porter Jr. Never got to see it play, but uh, I think this is a little bit different because it has been years of failure building up to it. Uh, it's been one bad year, and if next year turns into a second one, maybe we start having that conversation. But I do think Hopkins has a fairly uh, long rope at the point where we are right now. The voice of reason. No, I, I, I do agree. Long term, I'm still optimistic about this team um, and this coach. Uh, I do like you mentioned briefly Raekwon Battle. Um, you know, he was asked to do, I think, a lot more this year than people thought he would. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a freshman, you you see the talent is there, and I'm really optimistic about his future. So it's not like there aren't, you know, potential playmakers on this team moving forward. Um, it's really just going to come down to how much can they develop um, over the course of this next offseason. Yeah, I think that's right. And they, having the extra summer with the program can't hurt. Uh KB, do you want to weigh in and tell us how wrong we are about all of this and, and uh, drop the truth about what the basketball team uh, is really doing right now? Absolutely not. I I, uh, I could not be overstated how little I know about basketball. Even just listening to you guys do the, talk about this, I was like, oh, wow, you're so smart. I don't even know if what you guys are saying is smart. I don't know if it's true. It's really smart I, and I, very I true. I don't know anything. I really don't know anything. Uh, it, it, it's, yeah, topics where you guys could tell me 
pretty much anything in any language, and I would believe you and think you're a genius. You want to say anything about the softball team, which is incredibly good and winning everything right now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think you summed it up. I love, for what it's worth, I think the softball team is a really good example of a program that is run so well. Like, just, I mean, you look at what Coach Tar has done and both the stability that she has uh, brought. I mean, she's been there since, what, 2000, I want to say three. Um, but, like, the stability and, like, the high standards that never really waver, um, I think it's not that much of a stretch to say. I think other than crew, that softball has definitely been the most consistently um, really well-performing program of the 21st century, and I don't think it's that close. Um, but, yeah, so, Kelly, I mean, what Kelly Lynch was, this is either her, I think this is her third Pac-12 freshman of the week, uh, in the third and, week of the season, she's the only person yeah. who's won it so far. Yeah, and like you know, even with Sis Bates out, they still did 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 quite well. I mean, they're number two in the country now. They start out number one. Uh, wait, who's number one right now? Actually, I just spaced out and forgot. Either way, I mean, so I mean, they've lost twice, but I, I don't think there's any reason to think that they can't make it to the women's college world series and and play for a for a championship this year for sure. Um they're just a whole lot of fun. And Sis Bates is back now. Right? Yeah, she's back now. Yeah, she pitched in the last game, I think. UCLA Wait, is number one according to the internet. Um Sis Bates didn't pitch, she's a shortstop. Oh, didn't she play in the last I'm sorry, I didn't mean pitch. Did she play in the last game? I, I said Um Yeah, I think so. Okay, she, anyway. Does she have yeah. a chance to – she probably has a, a pretty reasonable chance to be the greatest athlete ever named Sis, right? Is there anybody else in that debate? Ooh. Well, I don't. I can't say I know many. Yeah. I don't know. Short list. Yeah. Either way. Um, I love – and I'm obviously biased because I grew up, like, going to uh, UW, like, Coach Tar's camps and, like, uh, as a pre-team uh, volunteering for some of their stuff and – whatever, and Caitlin Noble was, like, a, and Daniel Laurie, but especially Caitlin Noble, because I was a little bit younger than, was, were gods, uh, and, like, Nicole Moyen and all those people, so I'm biased towards the softball program, but, I mean, there's no reason not to be there. They're, yeah, Coach Tar and, and JT and everything they've built uh, is awesome. So, support softball. They kick ass. Yeah, if you're very listening. cool. Well, and that is kind of a natural transition into our recommendations and plugs. We've got one uh, recommendation for UW softball. Either of you, Rob, do you want to jump in with anything and uh, give Gaby a chance to collect her uh, <laughs> possible My upcoming days? Uh, anything you've been watching or reading or listening to or uh, playing or observing or whatever uh, that you'd like to recommend? You know, with all of the coronavirus fun and um, it is Super Tuesday that we're recording this, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of really like heavy serious things in this world to focus on right now. So I think it's a really good time for everybody to just take a deep breath and turn on blind love, um, and you know, just just see how it all plays out. See if love is truly blind. Um, I don't know. I I started a, my my fiance started watching it and I started watching it out of the corner of my eye. I'm initially thinking, what an absurd premise. These people meet in pods, and they have a week or two to talk to each other and decide if they want to marry these people. This is outrageous. Oh, and I don't want to provide any spoilers, but uh, it plays out uh, in a pretty wild manner, and the it's, it's truly entertaining. And uh, I, I, without a doubt, thought I would hate it from the start and ended up, what, what more do you need other than entertainment? Yeah, I'm going to counter-recommend, because my wife watched this, and I saw, I don't know, maybe collectively eight minutes of it, and I really hated it. I completely <laughs> For all understand. the same reasons you liked it, actually. No, 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 I, I completely <laughs> understand. The skepticism is more than fair. Um, and, you know, maybe it's just because I was borderline forced to sit through a lot of it, but by, by the end, I, you know what, it's hard, it's hard for me to... Uh, I, to come and save you. <laughs> Things are deteriorating. Well, Jamie, what do you have to add? Oh, uh, well, wait, I didn't, he wasn't done with his sentence. Go on, oh. Rob. 
I don't want to. I don't want to give any any spoilers, but I felt like vindicated at the end of it, and uh, it kind of also supports Andrew's claim. But the process was fun. I would never have pegged you for a reality TV guy. Nor would I have myself. I generally <laughs> despise him. Same. Okay, is it uh? Should I say things? Say things. All right. Um, I don't. Have I ever plugged? Have I ever suggested Taskmaster before? I don't think so. You don't think so? No, it doesn't okay. ring a bell. Okay, but then I'll do that. Uh, it's uh, so Taskmaster. It's a British TV show where every season, the Taskmaster, who is uh, Greg Davies. Well, if you ever watched the In Betweeners, uh, you know him as the really tall, really mean uh, teacher at the high school. Uh, he's so he's the Taskmaster, and he put takes every season they take five different British comedians and. Uh, Give them each episode like four different, uh, just ridiculous, ridic- ridic- yeah, ridiculous tasks to do. Um, and then they compete in these things. Like one of them is they walk into this room and see uh, on the computer in front of them, there's a Swedish man on the other side. Um, and they have to make small talk with this Swedish man while putting on a full scuba outfit and they can't break eye contact. And every time they break eye contact, they get like three seconds taken off or whatever. Um, and it's, or there's one where they have two minutes or whatever to get a coconut as far away from the house that they're in as possible. And they can't touch the floor. Um, it's, it's really funny and really, really absolutely like stupid, but in, the most fun way possible. Unlike blind love or whatever the shit. It's just absurd. And <laughs> and, there, and there are some things where you see people who, by the end of the season, you're like, oh, maybe you're a genius because you just see how people's brains work. Um, and it's both really funny and really genuinely interesting if you're into psychology and thinking outside the box. So, oh, and uh, I guess I should probably throw a show of mine down there. Oh, if you're in Bellingham to, well, tomorrow when we're recording this, but I suppose if you're listening to this on Wednesday, March 4th, um, if you're in Bellingham today, um, I'll be closing out Menace on the Mic, which is at Menace Brewing. I think Timmy Booth is on it, too. He's very funny, um, and it's a really fun show. I've done it before, and there was a German Shepherd puppy in the audience. Menace on the Mic sounds like a heavy metal festival, doesn't it? It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I almost wish it were. Except for, no, I don't. I don't like heavy metal, so, whatever. Come to that, hang out, stay yeah. up here. <laughs> Menace on the Mic. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it's like the guy who does the matzo truck, uh, advertisements. Uh, so, yeah, I will throw in one TV show. I don't know if I managed to talk about this before, but The Outsider on HBO is getting close to the end. Uh, probably if you are into Curb Your Enthusiasm, you're already watching that. Like, nobody needs to be referred to that show in season 13 or whatever. Uh, the Outsider, still newish. It's a, it's a based on a Stephen King book. It was adapted for TV by Richard Price, who's done some really awesome things, including the miniseries The Night Of a few years ago. And it's partially written, or a lot of the episodes are written by Dennis Lehane, who's a great uh, mystery novelist, but also wrote uh, the book that became The Town and Gone Girl and a couple other uh, books that became very good movies. And so it's really very cool. He's adapting, so these two guys adapting a Stephen King novel that's about, like, this crime spree of child murders in the Deep South. And uh, it turns out there is potentially a supernatural cause uh, overriding some of these murders. It's very, very interesting, and it unfolds in a way where you're kind of like, this doesn't feel like a sci-fi show, um, but it kind of has that, that feel about uh, that the first season of True Detective had where you're like, this isn't really sci-fi, but I'm kind of going along with it, and if you tell me there's a ghost or a demon, I'm probably going to believe it. And it's very cool. I'm really enjoying it. Also, um, just finished... A, uh, or just finishing a book called um, Trick Mirror. It's a book of essays by a writer named Gia, Tol- Gia Tolentino. Uh, it's very interesting. A lot of it, a lot of the essays are about like how to be, uh, how to deal with contemporary society and technology as uh, a young, thoughtful person. And some of them are, are 
Very, very entertaining. Uh, speaking of reality TV, she is also, as a child, on a reality TV show and writes about that experience and what it's like to look back on it now as an adult. And it's, it's a very funny chapter in the book. Um, but the, the first essay in it about living with Internet and how it turns you into a rat um, hitting the the bar for pellets. Cocaine. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like constantly. It like, social media feeds are designed to just make you keep scrolling and it's intentionally not interesting the vast majority of the time, so you do get, uh, like, a dopamine rush when you find something interesting. It's kind of, you know, kind of like refreshing your podcast feed. And every once in a while, see, that we put, put out a new episode, and there's your dopamine rush. Baby. Does that sound right? No. Okay. That sounds right. Sure. <laughs> before, we, before we step out, can I rescind my recommendation uh, that was made um, – uh, under duress as I wasn't prepared for my answer and chasing my dog around my living room so he wouldn't bark during the podcast? No. What? No, you may not. I uh, have an update on that as well after you give your suggestion. The Wild Podcast by Chris Morgan. He's a he's a local ecologist out of Bellingham. It's KUOW. You like podcasts. We all like podcasts. This is a podcast. It's a podcast. It's a really good podcast. He takes you into nature all over the world, but it's very Pacific Northwest heavy, given that he's a local. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's it's very peaceful and extremely interesting. Well, I'm just going to say that my cat died, so we no longer have to worry about him yowling in the background, oh, which is a really nice uh, note to end on, isn't it? I, I, no, but rest, anyway. Rest in peace. He was 17. Yeah, that's a good run. That's a good run. It is a solid – that is the uh, tenure of Coach Tar, ass-kicker extraordinaire, I think. Yeah, sounds great. All right, well, thank you for all uh, listening in, and we will be back. Send us your mailbag questions again at the UW Dog Pound uh, Twitter account, and we will compile those. We'll do a whole show dedicated to them next time out. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and we will talk to you all very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.